Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum podcast. I'm Ryan from Coltsploitation.com and I'm joined with my co-host Martin. How's it going? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. It's been a couple weeks since we did our last episode. And last time after Avengers Infinity War, we said that we we're going to do a horror movie this time. And uh, we're back to, we're, we're kind of back to our Italian horror roots here. Um, we're named after Blood and Black Lace and we've actually never done that film before. Uh, but we have done a couple of giallos, and and uh, today's episode isn't really what I would classify as a giallo film, um, even though because of uh, the director Dario Argento, that has often come under fire as people try to try to claim that it's a giallo film. Uh, to me, it doesn't really matter what you call it, but uh, we are doing Argento's Suspiria. Well, what's the point of having labels, Ryan, if you uh, if you don't gonna, follow the rules? If you're not going to lay exactly, yeah. Well, the rule is, for this at least, for Jello, that you have a, um, there, I mean, there's a couple of tropes to Jello. Jelly, actually, if you're going to go with the Italian plural form, Jelly. Um, the rule, basically, is that you have sort of a POV killer. If someone uses a razor. <laughs> I guess. I want, I want, I, you know, I want to see what uh, killer films throughout the world are like. In America, it's always like a. Some kind of like butcher knife or a cleaver. Big knife. Yeah. You know, something you'd see in like an Emerald Lagasse set. Um, in Italy, it's good old, old-timey razors. <laughs> Everybody who's running around with good old, old-timey razors. You know, um, like what's it in Germany? What's it in like China and Japan? Like the creamy films? Actually, uh, probably knives, I would say. Nothing too extravagant, I don't think. No one's running around with. Uh, Try to think of something that something like a bayonet or something, or something like Germany bayonet. I think no, I'm thinking more like just like something like totally random because like a, to me a razor. I mean, you know, I mean it's it is practical, but yeah, like I, at I, the I mean, time, I'm sure most Italian men were carrying like straight razors around in their back just, pockets just, just because they're like. They're hairy men. Just brush it off. Never know head. when you need. Yeah, never know when you need a nice trim on the beard. I'm just. No, I'm just thinking. Like you know, um, I'm. I'm having a hard time trying to think of like just like a common like random just like thing that's sharp, but you wouldn't think like oh, I could use this to kill somebody with. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't. I can't think of anything either right now. Razor probably would is the most common like utilized thing. I guess you could do like scissors, like maybe. After you're done with your arts and crafts in Germany, you're running around with some scissors in your back pocket. Don't run with them. It's a bad idea. A trowel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whole whole one, one just dedicated to, you know, they like saw. Like the German three little pigs building their house and then you got your trowel. Nor- yeah, I say Norwegian slashers. Yeah. You use a trowel because somebody saw Night of the Living Dead. Like, that's a great idea. Trowel weapon. Works. I think that would work. Um, but anyway, Jello films, so we have that slasher trope uh, of like a POV killer um, and then also like the black gloves, big, big trope. 
of having like that POV where you see the black leather gloves slipped on, you know, you know, this is basically the OJ driving gloves. I one day you know, wish to ha- be rich enough to have a nice enough car where I could feel like you, I could ha- need a pair of driving just gloves. Just like, yeah, basically like, because yeah, all these people in these yellow films are running around with leather driving gloves. They obviously are driving nice cars. They're, Even they're, by the 70s. That's like an antiquated concept. Like, oh, I'm going to. Yeah, put, put on like, my driving gloves. Yeah, it was more like a 50s and 60s thing of like, got to protect the hands. <laughs> Moisturizer's <laughs> hard to come by right now. You don't know. You don't want to know what my Jaguar's uh, steering wheel's made out of. I can't possibly, you know, <laughs> sharp objects on it. Yeah, I don't know the the whole reasoning behind having driving gloves. It makes sense if like you're a race car driver because you're sweating at the knuckles. So you're sweating, especially, especially in time vibrations. When, well, I guess this is before power steerings. You know, yeah. Really common. True. So you want to have you're gonna have to have a good grip on the wheel. So it makes sense if you're like a race car driver, mm. you know. But if you're just like you don't want him to fall off or something while you're in yeah. the middle of a turn. But yeah, like it, it. It's almost like driving gloves are to me like something unnecessary because if you think about other things that you put gloves on for, the, like how about like batting gloves? Yeah, you want to wear batting gloves because the a wooden bat vibrates like hell. hell and it fucking hurts when it vibrates, <laughs> but. Hopefully your car's not doing that. Otherwise, you need to go get an alignment or something. I was say to me, it's just the epitome of opulent. Like, you Pretty know, like, much. Like I have money, and I got you know. At, yeah, maybe at a certain point in the seventies, it was just like doing it to like make your neighbors annoyed. <laughs> it's just like, like they don't have a nice car, so I'm gonna. Hold on, hey George, <laughs> let me just slip on the driving gloves. Going out for a ride, you know. Not going anywhere in particular. Just gonna you know take a drive, <laughs> take a little drive off the. Yeah, no, that, that it's it does seem like opulence to the extreme for that, but but that was the thing with Jallo. And so when we're talking about Suspiria, um, Dario Argento is a 1977, what I would call an opus for him. Um, although he did have quite a few other films before this and then after that were also pretty inspirational besides Suspiria. But um, this film is not, I don't consider it, and many don't consider it, a Jallo film. Um, and... Would you care to take a gander as to the reasoning behind that? Um, probably because there's not enough story to go on to connect like an actual killer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all. I would say that. Well, it's part of it is that you know we do see ki- the killer from time to- a-, a-, a killer from time to time, but the biggest thing is that this is a more of a supernatural film it's not as much a slap like what we would consider a slasher and i would almost say calling a supernatural film is also being very forgiving i guess we'll get into that in a very little bit. Uh, v- very um generous i mean but it is though like it's not it doesn't center around like this one uh murderous, specific yeah, murderer that's running around and doing all of these murders for the most part, we see a whole variety of different things happening. And so more it's more along the lines of like paranormal slash supernatural in a way that doesn't really fit alongside the regular Jello format. Well, as we've reviewed in other, well, I would say the other Argento film that I've at least seen that's more paranormal than is Jello with Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Even the Phenomena in this film, just like in Phenomena, don't really make any fucking sense. True. I mean... They're just kind of there. 
to get you know, to make things kind of that is an that's slightly tied together so you can call so you can at the end of the day say there is a narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly what Argento does, and then partly also um, a lot of his motifs is just that it's more of an art than a you know basic storytelling element like if we're talking about some of the other films that he does like um opera there's an art to opera as well in that it tries to reenact a story of an opera or tell it in that sort of style um i'm not dis- i'm not disagreeing with you know those ideas i know like i the only Argento films I've seen are the ones we've done for the podcast. So mm-hmm. if you want to know my views of him as a director, you can watch our Argento review. I mean, listen to our Argento reviews and listen to this one. Um, and I, I understand that. I understand that on the spectrum of filmmaking, um, if you had like like one extreme is just total visuals and the other extreme is like n- totally narrative driven. He, you know, like a total, uh, totally narrative driven i'm trying to think of like a really narrative driven director it's kind of hard because a lot of great directors find a the great balance between narrative and visual i would say argento is totally on the visual side yeah he's very interested in the visual and not the narrative and the art form of expressing the vision that he sees in his head and putting it on film i would say leone too but not nearly as much as Argento. They're, at least his films have a well-grounded narrative. They're not the most in-depth narratives, but there's enough there that you can follow what's going on. But he's definitely also more interested in like visual storytelling. I guess I would say like like Spielberg would be like more interested in the narrative. He's more interested in like the whimsy, like when like when he's making like his just like regular box office films when he's not trying to go for like a an Academy Award. He's more like focused on like narrative and whimsy than he is like the actual cinematography and the visual aspect of the film. Yeah, I think I. I mean, I agree with that. That comparing them on the opposite spectrum, you have Spielberg, who's much more narratively driven, and then you have Argento, who's more artfully driven, where the story takes a back seat. And I like think- Kubrick, I would say is like the perfect balance. Like, bet- like true. Like he's very art, you know, visually driven. But his films also have a very, like, besides, like, Eyes Wide Shut, his films are also very well put together narratively. Like, well, yeah, like, well, I mean, if you're, we're talking Kubrick, uh, you see a lot of similar elements to Argento Suspiria in The Shining. Yes. Um, and, the, and All the red in this film was making me think, you know, the very famous, you know blood coming down the hallway and the you know yeah it's a very i mean the aesthetic to this and even sometimes the uh the framing and the atmospheric shots of actual buildings um are very much in line with kubrick's the shining and which i'm sure he probably did see suspiria yeah i I could um, because he's you know he likes liked film like as an art form well i'm sure so i'm sure he probably you know Knew what was uh, going on in Italy during the time, especially because he was living in London, in England. I'm sure he had some familiarity with it when he made it. Um, you know, to, to the point where I don't, I don't, I don't think it really influenced him 
as a filmmaker to make The Shining, but it definitely, you definitely see those similarities. And, and, um, especially a lot of people have played with color, but, um, Suspiria is, takes it to a whole other level. I mean, it, it really is a film that's, that revolves around color. It's almost like watching it through a prism or something. You know, you're basically, you're holding a prism up to your eye and then you're, you're watching a film behind it. It's literally the technicolor. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. It's yeah. red, blue, and, you know, green, like, and how it's literally like taking that, like, let's see how vibrant we can get those colors for this film. So, um, before we take our little break and do our, uh, our beer talk before getting into Suspiria, I'll leave everybody on the edge of their seat with one question that you can only answer with one word right now. Did you like Suspiria? One word. You got one word. You, you can't like elaborate on your, on what you're saying. It's you get one word. You'll find out. No, no, you can't. No. You can't. Did you say no? You didn't like it, or no? You're not going to. I'm not going to. We're gonna. We'll have to wait. All right, fine, whatever. You really left on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Everybody's got to, you know, listen. Listen through the beer talk if they don't want (laughs) to, and tune back in in 20 minutes. No. All right. Who knows? All right. Maybe I liked it. Maybe I didn't. I guess you're gonna leave it as clickbait. That's fine with me. All right. We'll move on to beer talk here because Martin doesn't want to play along. Uh, today we have a new beer that we actually, we've never had the brewery. I don't know why you also say that we have a new beer. Have we ever done like... Yeah, we've done a couple where not we, often. we revisit a beer, but for the most part, we have a new beer for sure. Always. and But, we, but this one really truly is a new beer because we've never had Six Point Brewery on the show ever. This is... that's. First of all, Six Point's not really a common beer that you find around here that much. Well, I do love that you said that we haven't had it on the show. I feel like like we like invited them into studio, like, hey, guys, we got come on, the guys come on in, guys. Yeah, it's like yeah. uh, like Cribs yeah. style hey, podcasting. Hey, hey, hey. Come on in, check out what's in the fridge. Make so, yourselves at home. We'll talk about your beer now. Yeah, but no, um, they are based in New York City. I know, which is weird because. I just feel like Six Points not that readily available around where we are. And they got it wrong. It's the Five Points. Have you seen Gangs in New York? Come on. True. True. I just, I don't know that much about Six Point, to be honest with you, just because I haven't had that much. Um, I think I have had a couple of their beers, um, and that couple would be including this one, because I can't even name the other one that I've had. It's probably just a very, like, quick, you know, maybe I had it at a bar or something. But, um, so I've never really had Six Point before, but we have the Citrus Jammer on the show today. And, uh, the Citrus Jammer is, I think, a take on their regular Jammer. Is that, is that, I think that's how it works. I I I think they have a regular Jammer and this one is a Citrus Jammer because it adds the ghost style to this. And I say ghost. I always say um, ghost, and I realize that that's not the correct way to say it, but I don't care. That's how I'm saying it. Why? How is that supposed to be said? Um, goze is the correct terminology, mm-hmm. but I don't like it, so I don't say it that way. <laughs> Actually, it's go. It's goza. Goza. I Gozar? made it into... 
Goza. Gozar. I made it into French when I said Goze, <laughs> like a ro- nice rosé. <laughs> but uh, I am the gatekeeper. You're it's, the key master. <laughs> it's Goza, and I don't like saying it that way, so I'm just going to keep mispronouncing it as mm. ghosts. But so Citrus Jammer is their ghost style. Um, mm. And it is a uh, 4% alcohol beer with sea salt. And the, the I like how the can states this in a very like non-specific way. Citrus added, <laughs> um, but I believe that the actual citrus that they add is lime. So this is, I think, a very medium style ghost. Um, it's not super tart or or sour. Um, it just has like a nice snap at the end. I would say. Um, so. Those of us who really like enjoy a super sour ghost uh, may be disappointed with the sort of mild flavors that come across from this citrus jammer. But I think what really comes out is the citrus itself, like the lime taste and the sea salt, which does give it a nice, uh, I don't know, like pop to it. It really makes me smack my tongue. It's almost like a, uh, like a, style of margarita like a beer rita but done well not like bud bud light they have a uh, fruit rita for everything now lime rita pizza rita this reminds me of a margarita but just it doesn't have the the um sometimes like what some people might think of as a the problematic taste of tequila because I know there are a lot of people who do not really like tequila. Do you? Do you like tequila? <laughs> no. Oh, you don't like tequila. <laughs> no. So definitely, a lot of people have a difficult time with tequila, and so this kind of eliminates the tequila flavor from a margarita, and so you get the rest of what the margarita would be, which would be the lime percent alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> the lime flavor, the citrus flavor. The other thing that this does really well. From the perspective of someone who wants a margarita, but they don't want like any of the actual ingredients in a margarita. This citrus jammer has a nice balanced flavor to it that I think works really well. And I'm not a ghost person myself, as said several times in the podcast when we've done these type of beers. But I do like this one quite a bit. Um, I do like that it's not that tart. Um, I did make my typical, as Ryan can attest to, I sucking on a lemon face when I had my first sip of it. But after that, it, I got accustomed to it pretty quick, and I enjoyed it. It was pretty good. I like the that it is like on like a lime. Um, the saltiness does add like a nice uh, pop to it, as you said, and it's as your new favorite verb for beer. Is it's a I mean that verb adjective it's crushable, yeah it's, that is my new favorite. It's a, it's literally to me it's basically kind of like um, dogfish heads uh, sea quench, which is also like black <clears throat> lime and sea salt, which you know was, I thought was pretty da- damn good. So I actually didn't have that one because you got it yourself. I just got a I, single, yeah. yeah, and I I did like that a lot. That that's a little bit more stronger. It's a little bit more citrusy and a, more salty too, but. I did think that was really good. So th- th- this is a really refreshing beer. On like a nice hot day like it has been today, this would be a nice uh, 
nice beer to have. Yeah, it's it's sessionable at four percent. It's really even crushable. Yeah, it's crushable. It's just uh, it's just an easy drinking beer, and I think that uh, a lot of people, even people who don't really like ghosts. It'd be one like I'd say like give it a shot. Yeah, yeah, especially especially if you're like on you're you're not really sure about ghosts. You never really had them before. Uh, one to try out and see you know if you want to move into like the more extreme areas of ghosts. So good beer. Student still no Jenny Ruby Red Kolsch. It's not, but which I had I had to go and change my rating on Untapped. Give it five. Yeah, I, saw I, I mean I, I I can't delete the first one. See that's what I gotta do. I gotta wait. When I drink, when I start rating things on Untapped, I gotta wait like to get through the beer and like fully process it. I don't know why I gave it a four and a half because that that thing is it's a it's a five straight up five. No, not no questions asked. Both of them are crushable though. Citrus Jammer and I know, but I'm gonna Ruby be Red sad Kulch. when that Ruby Red Colch is gone. Yeah, like I, like at this point, it's like hey, Oktoberfest is coming. Yeah, up. pretty much. I'm gonna be like, I'm what? gonna I'm gonna so be what like, date is it? May sixteenth? Yeah, Oktoberfest probably should be coming around in a couple months. I did. They on I was saying on Facebook, they just po- Jenny just posted um like it's so good and so delicious and it's not even summer yet. I'm like I'm like you don't 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 be saying you're getting rid of this soon. Please don't. I'm sure not like this. You can wait. You know what? Their Oktoberfest can wait till October. That's how good this Ruby Red Colch is. Hopefully. All right. You ready to get into Spiria? I in, guess. In depth? I guess. Because you don't seem that excited about it. I don't know why. Because I'm saving it for when we get... When we actually get into to it To the here. meat and potatoes. That's right. right. Right now we're at our chef salads part. With a little bit of balsamic vinegar. We just finished that up. Cleansing the palate with some lemon sorbet. We're at a fancy pretty, restaurant. Pretty, I, mean, I guess this podcast is turned into cooking with Martin. Yeah. And now we're getting into, you know. The main entree, the main s- dish. Steak, potato, and vegetables. All right. Well, let's start with the steak. Let's try to summarize this <laughs> plot as best, best as possible. Because you say it was a very limited one. Uh, yeah. So go ahead. Try to sum it up here. Um Give us a give us the gist of the plot for Suspiria for people who don't know. After forty years of this film, people who don't know the plot yet. So, the plot of Suspiria is uh, a American girl is going to a German ballet academy, and strange shit happens there, and some people die. And then we take an hour and forty minutes to get to the why that happens, and it's just kind of thrown upon you. So, all the weird things that happen, there's a reason. Five pages of script. Well, that's not true. Because as we've seen in this film, which is has an English dub to it, there's quite a lot of dialogue. It's not that great of dialogue. And it's, it's not delivering. It's rapid fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's rapid yeah. fire. Not only is it rapid fire, it's like so like. To the point, like, here's the exposition. Blunt. Yeah. Yes, like. Oh yes, yeah. You're from here, and you come from here, and you do this, and yes, that's how. Oh, and that happened. Yes, I'll call it right away. Like um, the one scene where the headmistress is talking to her about the weird things, and she's like saying, "Like, oh, I heard these words that she said, Iris and secret, but I don't know what it means." She's like, oh, you didn't say that. Call the police right now. She just literally picks up the phone. Like, there's no like you know brevity or anything. Like, or let let that whole part breathe out. Like, nope. She's like, oh, call the police right now. Yeah, one of my favorite things to uh, I mean. I should say favorite in that the, you can see the problems with the dub is that like when Susie is actually on the phone um, with uh, 
Udo Kier's uh, character, Dr. Mandel, who is uh, like the psychiatrist that Sarah's been um, talking to. She's uh, talking to him on the phone and really not giving him any time to respond. Like, so, cause you can't hear his side of the conversation mm-hmm. on the phone. So she's saying things like, hi, uh, uh, this is Susie. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Sarah's friend. Oh, I'd like to meet with you. Oh yeah, that sounds great. And it's just like a rapid fire, like conversation she's having with herself where he has no chance yeah. to actually respond to it. So there are a lot of scenes like that. And as we see in the one scene that he's in before that, where he's just walking around drinking a glass of red wine <laughs> and a regular pint glass for some reason. I don't know. That's very faux pas. And I'm not even a wino. But anyway. I don't think so. Not in Italy. That's not faux pas. Well, anywho. The tall glasses. Point are is, actually... he was a very talkative man, that scene. That four minutes he gets on screen, he's very talkative. Basically reading a Wikipedia yeah, entry geez. about witches. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's hard to believe in that phone call. He's just like, yeah. Well, I'm going to try to go a little bit further here and give a bit more context on Suspiria. I think you're right, though, by saying that the plot is very limited here, and the reasoning for that is because this is the first of the Mother trilogy that Dario Argento works on, and so I think that the idea is not as fleshed out as Argento uh, makes it to be in Inferno. So the sequel is Inferno comes after this, and we really get more information about Suspiria in that film than we do in this one. It's almost, as I said, I was talking to you, it's almost like in Halloween, where in Halloween, we really don't have a motive that much for Michael Myers following Jamie Lee Curtis. And then once we get to Halloween 2, there's more of a motive there. There's yeah, more information the, that we get. The difference is, though, there... Loomis gives enough subtext to where you don't need to know. The fact that he just says he's the boogeyman, he's pure evil. It's basic. It's not anything like thought-provokingly in-depth. But it's all you need to know. It's like, and then you can let your mind kind of wander and fill in the blanks. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor nightmare Throughout the film, supernatural aspect of the witches is tacked on in the last twenty minutes. Well, so just just so like, what the fuck's been going on becomes like, oh, this is why it's kind of going on. And well, that's we'll, we'll talk about that. I'll t- I want to talk about that in a second, but I, I want to kind of disagree with you on that point of um, that there's that it differs that much from Halloween because it doesn't. I think that your boogeyman example of what Loomis says is actually pre- present in Suspiria as well, in that, um, in this case, when we meet with Udo Kier's character, uh, he basically says the same thing about boogeymen, except for this case is Helena Marcos, who is we don't supposedly see, basically a black magic witch. we don't see her until the last five minutes. That's okay, though. The difference is in Halloween, Michael Myers is a... Helena Marcos throughout the film too, just in not not in explicit detail, but we in the uh, circular you know sheet fortress that the, yeah. the, 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 as of yeah. maggots. Um, so we do see Helena Marcos is as well there. But, but it's I, a, again, it's a silhouette. It is. And you don't know that until the end. So, I mean, but what's a visually striking scene? And, you know, 
done well, vi- like visually and through the score and the tension it builds. Again, narratively, it's weak. There's, there, it's so. I get what you're saying, like, like yeah, she's there, and like, but again, it's like you don't know that until the end, and it's like, oh, and you don't really want to have like a like a kind of aha moment where it's because it's exposition dump that you know solves what's going on which is what this film has exposition dumps like you you want that aha moment for you to be you to figure it out not the film to tell you that's why i think again narratively this film is weak i think that dario Argento doesn't do a good job of of info dumps and part of that is um the viewer to see things happening in the background they saw it happening but didn't know what it was so when you think about it um i believe that the intention here is really to make the audience feel like the one woman that we see most often which would be um joan bennett's character um the older lady that you know has been ushering Susie around and kind of trying to make her stay in the in the dormitory that she is really the immediate threat and the headmistress is kind of just off to the side. And then once you get to the end of the film, you realize, okay, well more, more so it's the headmistress who is the head of this coven. And so as you know, they refer to it during that exposition dump, she's the head of the scorpion. If you cut off that head, then the rest of the coven will wither and die. So I think there is some of that, uh, of Dario Gentro going on of trying to displace what would actually be, the main threat in the film. And um, we see that quite a bit of Argento, like putting things in the background of the film that will then come out later on that we actually see as that is part of the main purpose of why we saw it originally. Um, And I want to like, one of those things is uh, when Susie is in her room and she shares a bathroom with Sarah across the way. So Sarah at one point just goes into the bathroom and turns on the light. That turning on of the light is signaling later on that the rest of the coven is searching for Sarah when they go into the bathroom and she sees them in the bathroom later on. So a lot of those things that are taking place in the background are kind of ingeniously worked into the film later on as sort of a foreshadowing element. Or the other thing that we see, we see it very clearly is the film's final iris sequence where she turns the iris, the blue iris, um, that she's been no- she's known about since the beginning of a secret iris somewhere in the in the uh, building, but we don't really know what that means or where that is. Well, we've seen the iris room, we've seen that exact room, we've seen the layout, we've seen the red, yellow, and blue irises. Um, but the thing is, we just never really put that together. Or we and, and they pretty much ingeniously hide that door frame. I think very well within that room where you can't really tell that there is a secret scene there that leads to another passageway. So I think in a lot of ways that Argento's purpose here, while yes, he is forced to dump exposition and dialogue format, he's also hiding in plain sight some of the other sequences that we'll see later on in the film as foreshadowing. I don't know if that makes it better for you, but... I'm not not disagreeing with that because I think as we'll talk about in a minute about like the aesthetics of the film I, I you know i'm not i'm just saying as a plot overall it's a very weak plot i think a lot I of people I, have agreed with that for sure um and granted from the other films i've seen you know obviously writing is not you know 
strong suit, fucking phenomenon, you know, where that goes down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of, well, and that, the other thing is to be fair, it's presumed that Argento, while he worked on the screenplay, he wasn't really the main writer writer on this. Uh, it was actually Daria Nicolodi who main person who came up with the idea or the story. Um, you know, a storyline that was originally a book series, um, but really didn't have the ideas for the film, but he helped flesh it out as a, as writing it. So, yeah, I think there is some some truth to that, that he doesn't have a great handle on actually how to write a film or how to write dialogue. And uh, it makes me think, like, what did he contribute to Once Upon a Time in the West? What was his, you know, because he gets a screenwriting credit for it. So it's like... What the fuck did he do for that film? Right. Yeah, I, I think you... I mean, and you're not the only one to point out that Suspiria does have some problematic elements to it, um, one of which is that it's slow. It is For an hour and 40-minute film, it is fairly slow. It doesn't... Um, I, though it has tense sequences, I think that it it does have a plotting pace that doesn't really pick up until the... Maybe the last 30 minutes, 20 minutes even of the film where it actually really starts to pick up the pace and moving towards the end. Cause but at the same time, I will, I will, I will say, I think the plotting pace does work for this film because I think it has to, to get what it's trying to get out of, you know, from the audience, it's going to require slowly, you know, building to this big crescendo, not, you know, moving at a breakneck speed. Even though I, like I said, even though I think the, <laughs> When they do, you know, so the film is slow and plotting, but when it comes to the dialogue scenes where they're just dumping exposition, they blow through that. Because, again, he's not interested in the words and the actual narrative that's being told. He wants to tell it visually. That's why I was saying earlier, I think he's, again, a visual director and not like that. When you were saying, like, there's things in the scene that are being shot that foreshadow what's going to happen. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not disagreeing with how... Well, that's done. I'm just saying, as a narrative structure, it's a it's weak narratively, and I think you know again the plotting slowness of the how he kind of draws the scenes out of like Susie walking down the hallway and the colors and how they all you know that's all <clears throat> that's the whole different topic when you talk about the actual aesthetics of the film and how that lends you know yeah lends to the whole thing. It would have been interesting to see how. Um, Suspiria played out as sort of like a dialogueless film because I think in some ways it could work without that dialogue too as as like you said like a, a nightmare of just seeing it almost in now I'm not saying silence like because I think the goblin score is super important to this film but um, just the the lack of like a dialogue or exposition to help guide the viewer mm. and so they're kind of stuck in this nightmare with mm. Susie Banyan and in some ways um we are stuck in the nightmare with Susie uh I think Argento does want us to be almost as clueless as Susie is in in, in a lot of ways though he does switch back and forth between character uh POVs and things like that um for the most part a lot of it is shot where we're sort of in the shoes of Susie we there's one scene where he actually shows her um, picking up a glass of wine. And then when it, when it transitions back to with her drinking it, she's actually drinking it 
into the camera. So again, it's sort of like we're meant to be a part of that whole Susie's narrative, really. So we're kind of as clueless as Susie is as to what's going on. Um, and I don't think it makes things better. Like when you talk about the, the plotting and narrativeness, narrative um, storytelling ability from Argento, but I think it does in some ways help put us into like the surreality of Suspiria's own world. Cause it, it does in a lot of ways seem like it's its own world outside of what's happening in the real world. Um, do you want to, I mean, we, we've kind of talked a lot about just like the, the plot and the flaws in it, but do you want to talk about how the aesthetics actually go along with the plot or, or help the, or hinder the plot? I don't know how you feel, but help or hinder the plot in some way. So yeah, I know you said you, there's a lot of, uh, about the aesthetics that you actually wanted to speak to. No, no, you don't want to go into it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, we'll go into it. Um, so yeah, um, I think aesthetically, cinematography, um, and just the way, the way the entire film is shot, that's what makes this film worth watching. Um, I think the, the use of color in this film, and you know, I'm not just going to be saying anything new or revolutionary. The film's 40 years old, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. But I do, th- I do think it's really good and really cool how it's used and how different colors kind of signify like signify different like tones and emotion that's going on in the film when like scenes are vibrant red there's like a tension when they're like vibrant blue it's like a calming moment you know and there's yellow moments where they use more yellow and sometimes green but it's mainly like red and blue are the you know two main ones that get used, and it's really nice. Film has a lot of symmetry in it, mm-hmm. and the way every all the sets are set up and designed, everything is symmetrical. Like it was like amazing, just like watching the tracking shots on the hallway, whether they be POV or just like the camera going down a hallway and seeing how like every you know like five feet there's like a candle on the wall in each spot, and they're all the same. That there's set tables, and they're all the same. The same patterns. These elaborate ornate patterns that are on the wall and with vibrant colors and they're all again it's all symmetrical it's all the same it all connects and flows yeah it's really cool it's you know as i joked with you um i said like whoever designed this place like in this world that fucking you know interior designer had to have gotten paid a fucking fortune because it's like like, you want me to do what yeah had these like overlapping fish pattern that also looks like birds and what you know with the uh, or, all right, fine. It'll yeah. take you know, like t- Dolly abstraction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you know you're right with the symmetry in it. It does, and it's also noticeable when he breaks from the symmetry too, because that, uh, often that symmetry is broken in violent ways to signify either the tension of the scene or within the actual action of the scene. And a lot of times too, that's that symmetry is kind of literally shattered because we see a couple different things shattering in this film. Glass shattering, breaking through windows. Well, you also know is if it's is it a jello. Someone gets, you know, shattered, you know, shards of glass are used as a weapon yeah. and throwing people. Which that was kind of funny, that first girl that gets killed and he like smashes her head up against the window and they're showing her like face getting like just pressed like Aah! little uh, window face. Yeah. Yeah. Smooshed. Yes, that is, I mean... I think, though, that that scene in itself really sets you up for it because at that point, we're not even in the TAM uh, dance hall at that point, the studio. 
We're in a different building, but still, it's very, very elaborate. And you get to see, like, it really cues you in first off to, like, what's going to be happening in this film. You see the elaborate red walls, the patterning. Um, you get to see. see I, I thought at first, too, that was the. Same, the yeah, it gets a, it's a little confusing because, there at the like beginning. I, because, like I said, like, they all. Both buildings are, you know, like vibrant red color and they, they look similar. So I thought it was just kind of yeah. like a cordon off section of, you know. I And again, too, that I think it adds to the surreality of the situations is that within Argento's world here in Suspiria, things um, kind of swap around a little bit. Like their movements are out of place. They're not really... You don't, it's not like you see a tracking shot like her walking from the Tam building to this new apartment. It's more so like you see her running through woods and then all of a sudden she's at this other building. Yeah. It's sort of a surreal moment, like in a nightmare, where you might be in one spot and then all of a sudden you're somewhere else. And it, it, it adds to that surrealness of, you know, being there. Other people might call it continuity here. <laughs> um, but. Or just like not a, a, a lack of attention to detail, but um, it also just adds to the surreal atmosphere of the whole film of the the moodiness and and you know you never really know what's going to happen. Um, I think that the, the big atmosphere though is just all of the settings. You're right that the symmetry, um, the settings, the colors. I love the red colors for sure, but I also love like some of the other elements that seep into this, like the green. That's very limitedly used. And the green always gets me because that's the green happens when they turn out the lights. And it's like, oh, yeah, thank God the green backup generator <laughs> lights came on. Um, because, again, the color in this really forces the viewer to, I guess, suspend their disbelief. Because how often are you going to go to sleep in like this circular quarantine room with like red yeah. lighting glowing yeah, all no, over you'd you? Yeah, no, you'd be like, like oh, I'm trying to sleep. Like, yeah, you can't sleep because the fucking room's like blood red. <laughs> yeah. like, right. No one's waking up like, what's going on? Why is, you know. <laughs> Why is the red floodlights on? <laughs> yeah, I know. That does force you to suspend belief a little bit. But, um, and that's where I, and also too, I think it goes with, at least for me, it goes with, the whole it being a nightmare motif because a lot of the bad things that happen are when Susie's in the middle of like she's sleeping and she's like you know mumbling and it's all like every like so it's like to me it kind of comes across like she's having the nightmares and the nightmares are playing out within that whole studio and like what's happening so that's be that being the, like the f- phenomena of the film interestingly like some other some some elements and in, in, uh, film historians have have noted that the biggest thing that signals like this is becoming a nightmare is that initial sequence of Susie getting off the plane and being in the airport because when there's that really that first scene where she's walking towards the exit of the airport and the doors keep opening and so when as she's walking and she sees the doors open Goblin soundtrack comes in the Suspiria theme. But after that, once she's, you know, once the doors close and you see Susie's face again, the theme stops. So you're kind of, you know, there's that judder of hearing the theme and then not hearing it. And it's that very was very jarring for like yeah, the first that like would, five, you know, five seconds of the film. It's me like, yeah, walking it's, around and like, blah, 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 blah. yeah, 
Because because how often do you have like a soundtrack that like just stops at random like every five seconds? It's not that often. Italian films. Right. But (laughs) what it seems to signify is that that opening of the door, she's stepping into this nightmare world, this this different world from the one that she's used to. Hence the torrential downpours that never end. Hence the uh, very uh, trope-ish storm. That is taking place outside. The you know, thunder and light. It was a dark and stormy night. Why can't they have it one day just be like, it was a hot, you know, nice It was a really day. hot day. and like a nice, just summer day, 75. People weren't sweating, you know. To, you know, it was just a really good day. And then just shit happens. Crickets are chirping. Yeah. Very nice, nice old, nice old time. But uh, I think, yeah, the atmosphere is really important to this film. And I think even if you if you can't really get down with the whole mother thing which isn't really fleshed out in this film uh mater superiorum doesn't really get a name or anything like that it's basically just helena marcos as a witch yeah you can't you can't use other films that are in the continuity right weren't even yeah that's um like i wouldn't tell you to be like if you watched you know because originally the first star wars no matter what lucas says he probably didn't have he didn't have empire return in his head and all that shit that's why, you know, when it first came out, it was just Star Wars, not Episode Four. Right. So, you can't, like, if if you're watching A New Hope, the first original Star Wars in a vacuum, you can't be like, well, in context, if you've seen Empire, and this is all, you know, kind of, you know, makes sense. And it's like, no, because this film was made in a vacuum. Right. So, yeah. You know, everything else is consequential, just it kind of adds on to it. So, it's like it's the same thing with Suspiria. You know? I, I totally agree. I mean, you can't. I can't say that Argento at this point was truly working off of like the, his three mothers trilogy. I don't think that it comes out enough to really say with Suspiria that like Inferno was coming next and it was going to be the second part of the three mothers. I think in and Inferno, t- I say that it takes him 25 years to make the third one. So yeah, it, like in Inferno, he did at least at that point structure it a little bit more narratively that Mater Suspiriorum was the first mother uh, an Inferno Mater Tenebrarum is, or uh, I think it's in that one. I can't remember which mother it is. Um, it's in that one, but that would be the second mother. And he, so he kind of structures that a little bit more than what we get from Suspiria, which isn't that much. We don't know about other three other mothers. We only know about this one mother that leads the coven. And even then, she's not really referred to as a mother. She's more no, referred she's to as the Black Queen yeah. or Helena Marcos or the headmistress. And so... You're, you are left with sort of a very limited understanding of what's going on. And I think, too, an interesting element of Suspiria, I don't, I'm not saying this is good, I'm not saying it's bad, is that it's one of those films that almost lacks a theme. Like, if you try to think hard about the thematic, like, the overall overarching metaphor or theme about this film, it's very difficult to come up with one specifically that you can use within the film's context to like elaborate on wear a bra right wear a bra <laughs> otherwise you get killed by a coven of witches yeah i think the biggest one and and it doesn't come out that well the biggest one or not the biggest one but one of the ones that you can think of is that as a whole uh we are smaller than our environment than than the things that are happening around us is a big one because there's a lot of those sequences where the ethereal is kind of acting on the small insignificant creatures within. Um, One of the biggest 
elements that or scenes that that happens in is when the blind um, piano player is walking his dog through a very deserted city square, German yeah. square, um, and the the buildings around him are sort of looming. And intentionally, like, he is made to seem very, very small and insignificant in comparison to those gigantic buildings. Um, I th- and then the ethereal nature of that is that you kind of see the the creature. You don't see, you don't get to see it, but it's sort of like a winged creature that's flying through. That's almost meant to resemble witches, as the shadows kind of play on the on the buildings. But the it's very ethereal in that he can't see it. I mean, he's blind. Obviously, he can't see it. But he can sense it. And we can't see it, but we know it's there. It's a very atmospheric thing that's like, you know, you are they smaller the, they, than... They say the, they use the camera to, you know... Exactly, yeah. To, sh- to show that, the, you know, the, There's the, a scale there that's like you are smaller than the things that are working and happening around you. Um, but other than that, I've heard it called uh, from critics... A coming of age story, which I completely disagree with. Um, I, I don't it's believe just, that. It's just like Stand by Me, right? I, I, I the Goonies. I'll, I'll say that I I definitely disagree with it being called a coming of age story. She by the time a, she already has, is of age. Yeah, by the time we get to Susie Banyan, she's of age. The only thing that she was you about can, to say she's bitching about how she didn't like you know she didn't want to be in the boarding school. The only thing because you can really she, say with that like a coming of age story is that she's kind of bullied by other girls. Her age, but it's not even really a significant impact on the no, story. No, because she, she, it doesn't bother her, right? Because they did the whole like you know, the one girl Olga was like, oh, I heard, we, you know, people who had the name that start with an S are snakes, you know, and she gets a tiff with another girl, you know, Sarah, who's um that, and she's upset by that, but Susie's like, I don't care. Yeah, it's it does, yeah. You know. I I completely disagree with that. I don't think it's a coming of age story at all. Um. The other very, very minor theme that it has has to do with money. And I I don't think it's fleshed out enough where you can really draw a conclusion about it, except for the fact that everybody at the beginning of the film is completely obsessed with money. And that's really all that you get from it, is that perhaps it's a story on greed and that you will go so far with a witch to get what you want. But... There's not really enough there to, yeah. It's a very, very, uh, you know, tenebrous connection to. I'm gonna go with nightmare. Yeah, the the easiest one to say is that it's just a. I don't and I don't remember. I'm the I'm the a person who I never I will never remember my dreams. I don't ever remember my dreams. I don't ever remember my nightmares. I don't. I'll wake up and like if maybe like I'll have it in my head for like a second and then it's gone. And I'm like I can't remember, you know, what the hell that was all about. So it's you know, even but even like you know somebody who just talks to people who you know talks about their dreams and nightmares. This is what this film feels like every time. You know, not the parts where like it's the what's daylight and they're having conversation, doing the ballet school and dancing. But anytime it becomes night, it's the sleeping hours, witching hours. You know. Um, things get become more like lucid and dreamlike because again, that's when the colors come in. You know, the use of color and the shots that kind of that's when the green generators yeah. come on. The shots that kind of exas you know exacerbate and show the what you know the overall sets and how big and large and you know well put together. You know, like how they're all put together and mm-hmm. 
that that to me is like the theme that I get is just like the general nightmare. Yeah, just like the the, the all you know, it's just things that are kind of like hap- like it's all lucid, like you know, it's just a nightmare and it's lucid the entire way through. I think it's safe to leave it at that. It's just interesting that it doesn't really ever come to a you know, like an overarching theme. Like you don't, if you think about most films, in some way there is a a final metaphor that you get from it. You know, sort of like fable like. But in this film, you really don't get one, especially because of the abrupt ending. That it just is kind of like Susie Bannon. Even the whole lead up, there's not really even a lead up to the climax. It's more just like Susie's figuring out things, like the number of steps it takes to get to the main, like the the secret room. And then she finds it, and then she finds the mother, and then she vanquishes the mother, and then the ho- the every the whole building falls down and burns up, and that's it. It becomes a Metroid uh, Endgame escape, you know, escape. <laughs> that is funny. Planet Zebs. Like I would love to see a video of just like yeah, them putting like the Metroid countdown. timer like, on there. Warning, well, you know, yeah, ballet well, school about to explode. You have three minutes because that is that is effectively what happens in this. Um, and that is one thing that I really find impressive about the whole film, throughout the whole film, besides the lighting, is that whole that last sequence where everything is crumbling and falling down. Because they did a pretty good job of having things explode and, and blow yeah, up. Yeah, and, and that, you know, no. that's, a, that's a really cool moment, just of, like, everything that's happening at, at one time. And it's a precursor to, like, how we do it now. Obviously, we could do it through CGI. We could do it through elaborate stunts and mechanisms and things like that. But at that time, it was a little bit more difficult to rig up all this stuff. And especially having, like, Jessica Harper in there as all this glass shit is exploding. That's I I thought it was – and dropping from the ceiling, too. I thought that was pretty impressive, especially for 1977. So uh, we haven't really talked much about the actual gore in the film. Um, So – what did you think about that whole uh, – I mean, because in general, this film has been known to be fairly gory and like almost like in a I, – I would say it's like a sexy way almost in that it's kind of like at the forefront of the film and it's stylish. It's like the violence is meant to be stylish for like the reasoning behind the surrealism of the film. What did you think about that? It's The blood is very uh... – Hyper, uh, hyper colorized. Yeah, like a uh, super vibrant. It, um, I, I do love how like the blood is like a very vibrant red. It's not like in Dawn of the Dead where it's almost like pink, like pinkish blue with like how vibrant the red is. Right. I, I do think like this is like again kind of goes more for like the whole nightmare dream aspect of it. Like it's very. But just the way it's, you know, color and stylized very, you know, fits with the whole theme. Same thing with, like, the way people die, you know, the whole, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole um, beginning where you have the one girl, you know, getting, like, kind of almost, like, dragged through the window, but not quite. It's almost like like, like a Freddy-type thing. Yeah, like a like, hairy arm yeah, that yeah, comes out. coming through, and then... Um, how he stabs, you know, stabs her over and over again. So it's like, she's a tough son of a bitch. Like, she's just taking the, you know, should be dead. He's like, nope. But what really ties that whole part, you know, together and makes it very, you know, really cool is is how, you know, the head, like, smashes through the 
through the wind, the, the stained like glass, the stained glass, and yeah. it's just kind of sitting there, and then the whole body drops through on a yeah. That's a pretty hanging. cool moment that's, there, where you know, the, very, yeah. The head comes through, and you're kind of just like staring up at the head because you know the other girls just you know standing there screaming for her life, you know, yeah, not doing anything productive to try to get out of the situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes but, like but a, it does make for a really cool moment of you know just it's a know. really elaborate like setup that you have to have you have this you have this girl who's uh, getting killed up above on the stained glass window and this woman down below and eventually it's like a final destination moment later on where the window falls through and and you just have her impales her also like uh, displayed and impaled on with this window display it's pretty it's it's a pretty elaborate moment that you get like right away from the film and that that makes it like really interesting to like continue on forward to see where they go from there. Cause I think like at that point you're expecting it to even become a little bit more gruesome or gory or, or something like elaborate to it. Um, and I think that's, that makes it like a really interesting situation. And I don't know if all his films open like that, but I mean, they the, the, I mean tend to, I say, but yeah. the ones I've seen, like they all, you know, from Tenebrae phenomena, they all, this, they all start off with some, very elaborate way of some woman getting, you know, maimed and... <laughs> yeah, so uh, brutally stabbed yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. not like in Friday the 13th or whatever where it's like, like, oh, it's a slow, you know, slow build, we're gonna get there. It's like, no, right from the get-go, or, you know. And then you have the whole aspect of um, the barbed wire room. Which is ridiculous. That, that again, also, again, that to me, like, adds the whole... That makes, you know, makes, the, at least for me, the whole theme of it being, you know, surrounding, you know, nightmares and dreams. That's what, you know, how can that not be like, 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 like nightmare fuel? She's, you're like, oh, I'm going to escape. I, you know, this guy is sitting there. He's try I've locked myself in this room. I'm going to get, I'm actually going to escape. I'm going to get out. And then she just whoop, falls into like a giant pit of razor wire. And she dies from that. Yeah, it's definitely... It's literally, like, you know, in no rationale or logical sense to why that happened. It, you know, it just does. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, like, the barbed wire doesn't really, it's not even really meant to make sense. It's kind of just more like a, I don't know, like a surreal moment that she just falls into a pit of barbed wire. It's like, somebody ordered a massive amount of barbed wire on accident at the TAM, at the TAM dance hall, and... They decided to throw it in the back room because no, no one goes hop, in there. They're gonna have him hop over the. Well, it's not even like a back room; it's like a pit. Yeah, but, yeah, it's because it's like it's, attached to two rooms, but yeah. it's not really. And like it's not a, even like a trash compactor scenario or anything like that. It's just like up. It's like a pit of bar, you know, barbed wire. Right. It doesn't. Um, yeah. Like I said, so it's literally like that's like something you would like, that would only happen in a dream. Like, oh, I gotta get away! I gotta get away! And like, oh shit! You know. I, Fell into a whole thing yeah. of barbed wire. How did this? How did I get into this mess? You know? Yeah, um, that that one to me is just the most like absurd and obscene. Even like even going off the whole dream logic of the film, I love that it's absurd though. I, I mean, love it's it. funny and like I enjoy it for it being absurd like that. But at the same time, again, I can go with it because yeah, the, the way I view this film is you know a giant nightmare. So. Yeah, I that, love that. So, absurdity. so I mean, but I mean, I I can appreciate and enjoy the absurdity, especially compared to the rest of the scenes. You know, are very that involve characters getting killed or tense and brutal, like because they're very 
personal in the way they're handled. Right. Um, this isn't. So, it, in the way it is handled, it, it, you're right, it is absurd. And Yeah, it's absurd. I mean, it does get personal a little bit towards the end there. Um, as she's killed and she kind of ha- is cut open, flayed as like, I guess it looks like a, like a meatloaf, like a roast meatloaf that actually gets cut open there at the end with her neck, you know, cause you see yeah. that little, it's like almost like somebody cut into like a big beef hunk. But, uh, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting scenario, I think. And I, I've always liked it for what it is, even though it's ridiculous and no one has a whole room full of barbed wire. I still liked it for what it was, but I think like. Um, that whole, like the whole idea of the violence being sort of like sexy or artistic in some way lends itself to this film because for the most part, Argento, this is one of Argento's like sexless and nudity less films. Uh, one of his only ones. Um, and so something's got to be sexy about it. So we make the violence sexy instead. I wouldn't call the violence sexy. I think it is. I, I would mean, say it's artistic, yes, but I don't. I don't think it's. I've always found it to have like a like a intentionally sexy quality to it. That it's like sort of just in the way that like people who like gore would be attracted to it, and that sort of sexiness. Yeah. But I don't I know. I don't have that fetish. I guess not. I guess not. But I, I, I've uh, I've always found it to be that way. Um, the other. Uh, thing that we haven't talked about yet is the sound setup because the sound is actually pretty important to the film itself uh especially because it's for one thing it's got goblin as a soundtrack it's the like it's the cue to most of the moments in the film yeah it is it well yeah like as we talked about a little bit beforehand it's the um it's our cue to enter like suspiria's world uh but it's also continually becomes like this whole thing that kind of signals like violence because sometimes uh there will be a tense scene where goblin soundtrack is playing in the background you got the guy wheeling away on like the the bass as we played in our intro um and then all of a sudden like Susie will get out of that tense scenario yeah, like she'll, cut, she'll, she'll like cuts. yeah doesn't, she hides it, and cuts it doesn't fade yeah no it's it is i will say the use of the soundtrack is good because again it's only really played Again, it's played at night when like things are tense and like are build building to things. And I like the use of the soundtrack. However, that being said, this I think this is what Goblin's one of their weaker soundtracks. Really? Yes. That is that is not how most people I think would feel about a Goblin soundtrack. And I only say that because I think that this one is at least Goblin one of be- Goblin's better suited. Uh, tonally soundtracks to it. No, the I, mood of it and is I, better suited. And I agree with that. I, I think as a soundtrack and a score to the film, yeah, it's good and it's really well done. And it's good and I like it. However, that being said, just as like if I'm grading it as if I was like, a, if I'm going to pick like some goblin stuff to listen to, mm-hmm. this would not be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know technically they didn't, you know, it wasn't, they didn't do Tenet Bray, but you know, it was members of goblin right i would rather listen to the stuff from tenebrae yeah because i think i mean just as like a as a listening thing yeah something you know well yeah because you know there's like you know there's like um like i'm replaying it right now because just because i'm trophy whoring i'm replaying the last of us uh for ps4 i would say the soundtrack is minimal 
but it's well done and it's used in the right moments. I think it's well, you know, it's well done and the moments that it's used, it's it's great. But would I ever just sit down and want to listen to it? No. Right. You know, so it's... Yeah, I mean, so th- that's that's where I'm coming from with this. Again, I think their soundtrack for this film is good and it, again, it totally lends itself to the film because it goes perfectly with the visual aspects and the cinematography and color and all that. It fits with it perfectly. However, like I said, like, to me, like, if, you know, if I had to, like, choose listening to this or, like, Dawn of the Dead soundtrack, I'm listening mm-hmm. to Dawn of the Dead. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, too, part of that is, like, the witch wailing. Like, you're not gonna... Generally, most people don't want to sit down and hear, like, <laughs> Witch! Part of soundtrack. Witch! I think, like, yeah. in um, Tenebrae's soundtrack definitely has more of, like, just the prog rock element to it that you can just sit down and listen nice to. Nice and... Th- yeah, right, exactly. Tenebrae's theme is, yeah. you know, per- so is not really, yeah. like, one of those that you can just, like, l- sit down and listen yeah. to without somebody, like, looking over at you being like, what the fuck yeah. are you listening to? Um, yeah, no, but I, I definitely... I, I'm not saying that I have not done that. I have... I, actually, the the um, Synapse Films Blu-ray that I have with the, uh, the Steelbook actually comes with the soundtrack on a CD, so... Um, not saying I wouldn't sit down and listen to Suspiria on soundtrack, but, um, I do think that like some of the other ones are more prog rocky and like just listenable as a regular album than maybe Suspiria. Yeah, no, like like you said, like, like you said with Tenebrae, like Tenebrae, it's like that theme, like it has such a great synth and bass line. You can just listen to that, like, yeah, you know, the funny thing about like, when you say the Dawn of the Dead is I, I, sometimes I feel like. Down in the Dead soundtrack is ill-suited for it is. The no, things that are happening. No, it in the is. Film. No, that's that, one. It's so funny. Yeah, I, I mean, with this, you know, it is funny and quirky. It is something at first when I first watched Dawn of the Dead, I didn't really care for. It. I mean, I liked the soundtrack, but I'm like this doesn't fucking fit the film at all. But now, like you know, the whole kind of overall comedic horror elements of it. It's the same thing with like Day of the Dead too. Day of the Dead's got a yeah. Caribbean synth like yeah. soundtrack, and the first time I listened to that, I was like the fuck like and but now it's like it's great and i love right. it and you know yeah yeah it is funny how like some some of these you would sit down and actually listen to but maybe don't fit yeah. the theme of the film so well and then other ones you would they fit the theme of the well real the theme of the film really well like suspiria but you might not sit down and listen to it just on its own um i think like one of the things about suspiria too is that the goblin soundtrack is like very loud even in this film that we watched with uh, the Synapse Films res- restoration of the film that's done with the special soundtrack that's they made sure to get the sound the audio correct, the Goblin soundtrack is still really fucking loud on it. And it's it part of it is intentional. They want it to be loud and want it to be tense. Some of the sound overall in the film, like anytime the there's thunder or lightning yeah. crack totally like way you know yeah it's part of the sound original sound design again, of the film yeah i think that just adds to the whole lucid we're in a right. dream you know it's yeah all like sometimes dream, you, yeah. We, yeah like that initial uh part of the film where Susie can't really understand what yeah. um the one girl is saying mm-hmm. when she before she leaves the tam building um is sort of like at that distance, you would expect to be able to at least yeah. hear her a little bit or something. But I mean, we can't when we it's first right. going on because all you can hear is the fucking thunder and lightning yeah. and the rain. Because you know, you just hear like a very minimal mumbling sound. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it does. It kind of has that like dream sequence element to it of like you can't hear things or then you hear things really vividly. Um, another interesting nightmare mode to Suspiria. Um. I don't think there's really anything else that we can say about Suspiria that hasn't 
truly been said before. Um, I mean, after 40 years, this film has been really commented on over and over again. It's really become a staple of the horror genre. Obviously, it's getting a remake, and um, I think they announced it for November um, from Luca Guadagnino. Um, and so there's not a whole lot more to say critically on this film than what's already been said before. Uh, so I guess what I have to come back to is the question that I posed to you before we did our beer break. Uh, did you like Suspiria? And I guess this time you can actually like go a little bit more in depth to it than just saying. Okay, so let's, let's, uh, I'll preface it with this. So. Out of ten, out of ten blue irises, what would I give Suspiria? Okay, you you named your own rating scale. That's fine. Well, because usually, well, that's normally how you I do it. But well, I, what would you have gone with then? That's, yeah, that's no, good no, one. no. What what would you have gone with? I didn't really think about it. So, oh. yeah, well, out of ten highball glasses of wine, <laughs> as Udo Kier is drinking. No, out of ten. I, Blondish, gray, thick eyebrows. Or how about just, in general, lutes? Ten lutes for the <laughs> Goblin soundtrack. Uh, no, but your irises is fine. Go, you can go with that. Um, I will give it a seven and a half. Um, I think the biggest hindrance for me is the lack of a structured narrative that makes sense. Um... I think because we didn't really talk about it because um, there was really no need to talk about any of the actors like Udo Kier and all that because they don't really do anything outside of exp- exposition dump and outside of Susie who's played by uh, Jane Jennifer I mean Harper Jennifer Harper she's the only Jessica one Harper Jessica my bad uh, besides her I mean she's the only one that really has to show any emotion yeah. yeah and she does. Fit like with her body motions and you know her facial expressions. Problem is, the, like her voice is so badly dubbed, and I know it's her own voice, but I can just imagine it coming off a lot better when she was actually acting it than the dub. Because in the dub, she sounds fucking wooden as hell. Yeah, and I think that's like the case too. Like when we can't talk really about the actors, is that the dub is is problematic. It's very wooden. The deliveries of these don't really match with it, like the. Which goes off of, again, why I think as a silent film, it would work really well because you don't, everything's told visually. You don't need people to be, you know, saying things, just have the, you know, have it all be expressed with their bodies. Yeah. Um, But I think because there's there's a lack of a narrative, overall narrative structure, there's no real reason for you to kind of have any investment in the film other than, you know, if if you... or just like a layman watching this film, and you're not really into film as an art and like, you know, the visual aesthetics of film, you're not going to want to see this film because you're going to be like, what the fuck's going on? You know, you have to have like some kind of curiosity going into it. I think the premise itself is strong enough to where I, you know, was willing to follow along into what was going on um, and enjoy the film. I think, again, because it's such a visually stunning film. And it has a great soundtrack and pretty good sound design overall that kind of like use the visual and sound aspects to tell the story itself. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I think it's, in that sense, it is a great form of storytelling on Argento's part by having it all expressed visually. Yeah. Um, 
I think, well, like I said, but like I said, if if there was a str- slightly stronger narrative, I would find this film to be like probably just as great as Tenebrae. Because looking back on the films I've seen by him, Tenebrae is the one I love the most because it's not only visually stunning and has a great soundtrack, but it also has a very strong you know narrative too outside of a few quirks. Right. Yeah, I think one of the things too when we're ta- you're talking about visuals from the artists or from the actors, I mean, um, Alita Valley who plays the uh, one madam, um, the madam mistress there, mm-hmm. the, the crazy looking one. Um, she, she's like Frau, Frau, Frau Farbenissa. Farbin- yeah, she she <laughs> is a, does a great job with that character simply because of her, her vi- like expressions, yes. her visual expressions. Cause she's like super scary just from the get go of just seeing her face. And she's, she can be like super mad and still smiling yeah, through like, it. It's like, very unsettling how she does that. So I think, like, again, like, when you're talking about the silent aspect of it, she does a great delivery yeah. of just, like, facial recognition of, like, how she's feeling or, or like, how unsettling she can be. So I think it's good. So I I will give the film a 9. I think it's really good. Part of it is just nostalgia factor, how it really go- kind of goes into the uh, the trilogy a little bit more once we get into in- uh, Inferno as well. But, um, as I was going to say... Um, one thing I do want to say, because your 40th anniversary Steelbooks, the 4K resolution. Yeah. Uh, with the 4K resolution, um, I can't imagine seeing this film in any other like level of quality. I think if you saw this film in like like 480p, you'd be robbing yourself of like the great visual experience. And it's yeah. almost like kind of like I. It's hard to imagine now, kind of like imagine seeing this film like in the 70s for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like how that print probably looks compared to this. Yeah, and then and, and like all other prints, too, that I had seen pre- prior to this, even though you could definitely tell like the color was there, they definitely look muted. Um, certain scenes are completely changed in the way that they're presented, especially towards the end of the film. As you get into that, like the darker aspects of it, when you go to the the secret room and everything when she's back there it's kind of dark those are very like difficult to even make out when you were watching the other transfers of the film or like the early ones where you didn't have like this 4k restoration so yeah they did a great job of this uh interesting thing too is that umbrella entertainment from australia also released a 4k restoration of suspiria around the same time that synapse did and it I have not seen it myself, but I know that when we did the reviews on cultsploitation.com, um, our other writer, Michael, did say that Umbrella Entertainments looked great as well, although I have read that there are subtle differences between the two transfers, like color schemes and mm-hmm. things like that. So it's kind of interesting, too, how that can affect how you're viewing it. So I haven't seen the Umbrella Entertainment version of it, um, but I've heard that it's really great as well as a 4K transfer, just a little bit different in terms of how they, they restored it and what kind of colors came out. Um, so kind of interesting how that can impact a film as well. Uh, but yeah, definitely if you haven't seen a 4k restoration of this film, check out either one of them because, uh, they're both really good and they impact how you see the film and the, the events that happen. And again, as we stress, you know, throughout this entire podcast, it's a very visual film. Yeah. And I think if, you know, you're not seeing it in the yeah. highest quality possible, you will be robbing you do yourself. A, do of, a disservice to yourself. Yeah. 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 And I'm not usually a stickler for those ki- types of things, but that's yeah. like something as I was watching the film, just kind of like running through my head. Like I like I wonder what this looked like in the '70s on its original, you know, yeah. film print. What really those, stands out. What those reds and you know, I imagine they're again very vibrant, but you know, much more muted, not as sad because they are hyper saturated. Yeah, I think you know, 
part of the that's you know the film's aesthetic charm. Sure. So uh, that ends our Suspiria episode. What do you want to? What do you? What are we doing next for in two weeks? We have anything picked out yet? I don't know. What do you want to do? I'm not sure either. I, you know, we can stick with the horror element. Um, we can branch out a little. Maybe like do like a little sci-fi. Haven't done sci-fi in a while. Um, you know, something something along those lines. It's hard to say. I don't know. Haven't picked it out yet. We'll probably, I'll probably announce it before the next episode. It won't be a surprise. And at some point, we got to do Blood and Black Lace. <laughs> it would only make sense to do our namesake movie. That'll be like an anniversary episode. Like a two-year anniversary or something? Yeah. Or like 200th episode? Yeah, I say two-year. We're way past that. Uh, yeah, we are past two years. But 200th episode would be, would be a good one to do. There we go. We got a, a little ways to go, but 200. We'll hit, there at, we'll hit that at some point, so... All right, so we'll see you back in two weeks for a new episode of the podcast, which has yet to be announced. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, We hope you will find us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, or any other podcasting software that you can listen to podcasts on. And leave us a nice review and subscribe to us. Uh, We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. We're on Twitter at bloodandblackrum. Uh, We have a a patron account, so you can donate to us. If you donate a dollar a month, you get our episodes uh, early, so might be worth it to do that if you want to throw us a couple bucks to help keep the podcast running. Um, other than that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back in two weeks. Take care.